You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. Defense mode. We're survivors. Like, help with them. In our head, but they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Anne LaCase, who is a program director of the Dana-Farber Partners Cancer Center Fellowship, which is the largest hematology-oncology training program in the country. She is an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and performs clinical research in lymphoma. In addition, she has a strong interest in young adults and co-directs the Center for Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology with Dr. Lindsay Fraser at Dana-Farber. We also spoke with Dr. LaCase on another episode about CLL, discussing diagnosis, treatment, and other information, so we encourage you to listen to that episode as well, which can be found on the episode page on thebloodline.org. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. LaCase. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So we're going to jump right into discussion of CLL, and just to preface this conversation, what is CLL for the listener that is on today? So CLL is a cancer of B lymphocytes. So B lymphocytes are one of your immune cells. They arise out of what's called a bone marrow stem cell. Those are cells that live in the bone marrow and give rise to all your blood cells, white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. And CLL arises out of a subset of white blood cells called the B lymphocyte, whose normal job is to make antibodies that help you fight certain types of infections. You get a mistake in the machinery of that cell, and that cell gets a signal to copy itself, and you get a collection of abnormal cells that are growing abnormally, basically. And what are the two different forms of CLL? So CLL uh, and chronic lymphocytic leukemia and small lymphocytic lymphoma, we sort of think about as the same disease process. They just sort of present in slightly different way. In order to fit the category of CLL, you have to have more than 5,000 B lymphocytes in the peripheral blood. So if you have the same disease and you have fewer than 5,000, then we call it small lymphocytic lymphoma. Most patients present with lymph node enlargement. It's very, all patients essentially have disease within the bone marrow. It also can be seen in the spleen. Um, So it's really two forms. Most patients present with CLL. It's also a fluid definition as patients live with the disease longer and the white count goes higher. A patient may sort of transition out of being called small lymphocytic lymphoma to being called CLL. There's also what's called monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis, which is sort of a precursor to CLL. So if you have no enlarged lymph nodes or spleen and the absolute number of B lymphocytes in the blood is under 5,000, then that's actually a precursor to CLL. 
And many of those patients will never need any therapy and are just followed, you know, once a year with blood counts. Reading up about CLL and looking to see the connections to certain groups, I was reading that in 2002, the Department of Veterans Affairs added CLL to the list of diseases with sufficient evidence of an association with Asian orange exposure. Has there been more conversations about that? Yeah, this is one of the things that is considered service-related. So when we see veterans who have CLL or all non-Hodgkin lymphoma and Hodgkin lymphoma are also considered service-related because there is evidence that the herbicide that they use, the Agent Orange, it apparently came in drums that had an orange stripe around them. That's why they called it Agent Orange, and it was used to defoliate the jungles. It contains dioxin, which is a carcinogenic, and there has been some link with that in CLL. The data is a little bit hard to tease out, but it is considered by the government to be related to Agent Orange. And, you know, we also see patients who live in rural areas, and there's clearly an association with farmers and mantle cell lymphoma, which is a slightly different but related type of lymphoma. So I do think that environmental toxins may play a role in CLL. And like you said, it's probably so difficult to pinpoint because there's research, but then there's other research that may expound on something else. You're not entirely sure where to connect it to. So I, I understand how it can be confusing for a physician and for a patient as well. Yeah, the data is very difficult when you look at associations because there may be things. So, for instance, if you have a group of veterans that served in Vietnam, that's going to be men. CLL is more common in men. You know, maybe they're more of these individuals who are from rural areas or from, you know, so you really have to look and try to account for anything else that could be driving the association, and it's very difficult to do that. My father was in Vietnam, and I do know that the Veterans Administration does have resources for folks who are diagnosed with these types of cancers. So Vietnam veterans, if you're listening, as well as other veterans, anybody that has been exposed to Agent Orange, you can give us a call, and there is a special line for the Veterans Administration to get benefits and to make sure that you are treated. Yeah, it's very important, and I think it's a good resource, and we owe that to our veterans who were in Vietnam to treat them well. And it's also on the list for the World Trade Center. Yeah, you know, there there isn't much scientific data that I can find with an association, and the thing that is a little bit unusual in my mind is that, you know, this happened relatively recently, and we think of environmental exposures as having a relatively long latency before the cancer develops, and there are a large number of diagnoses that are considered associated with the World Trade Center. So, And I know that they also are following people who were first responders very carefully. In fact, I have a patient who was picked up as a first responder who was having serial blood draws and looking for things, and he has CLL. And he is relatively young, so maybe there was an association, but typically you think about, you know, a sort of more chronic exposure, and maybe people who are working at the site over longer periods of time. It's hard to know, but I think it's great that it's considered covered, and, you know, if there's any association, we need to help those folks. Absolutely. And you mentioned farmers and, you know, pesticides and herbicides, people in rural areas, and those are folks many times that don't live near any of the comprehensive cancer centers or may not have access to routine care. Is there anything that we can 
provide some tips on what to do? I know people are always asking. Yeah, you know, I think given the internet and just the way that medicine and medical centers are sort of evolving, there are now many places have close ties with rural areas. So for instance, here where I work, we have very close ties to multiple places in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. So there are oncologists whom we know very, very well uh, who send patients down when they need clinical trials or if the patient sometimes is just not feasible financially to come into Boston. But we can serve as consultants for those oncologists and know those people really well. Uh, And I think that that is true in many rural areas, that there are networks now of physicians at major cancer centers who have close ties. So I think, uh, you know, patients need to try to advocate for themselves, which can be very difficult. But I think just asking the questions and asking, you know, would it be worth my while to get a consult? And sometimes there are resources available to, to help people do that. And to your point, yes, technology serves as a wonderful resource. It can be a horrible resource at times, but, oh, but it, oh, it yes. definitely, definitely can have its perks. And when someone you know, needs that information, we highly encourage them to call our information specialists. And when someone calls, they can speak one-on-one with one of our information specialists who can assist them through cancer treatment, financial and social challenges, and give them up-to-date information about their disease. Because like we said, online you see everything. And to actually have that connection with individuals who have done the research for you and our master's level oncology social workers, nurses, and health educators, we highly encourage people to call them. And that number is one 800 nine five five four five seven two and they're open monday to friday 9 a.m to 9 p.m eastern time and we also encourage people to utilize a lot of our online uh, resources we know that it's hard to like lizette said get to places so by logging on to a chat or by joining our lls community people can connect with others who have either the same disease or maybe similar situations where they can ask questions and feel empowered to bring back to their healthcare team. So we definitely encourage people to also look at all of the support resources that we offer. And that website is www.lls.org forward slash support. Yeah, I think these are invaluable for patients. Uh, You know, when you meet with a new patient and have an hour, you know, somewhere between an hour and hour and a half usually initial consult it's so completely overwhelming and we go through so much information that uh, we leave patients completely you know overwhelmed with lots of questions that come up after they leave so I think having being able to sit back on their own time after they've digested the information a little bit and then hone in on questions and have the availability of these types of resources is really amazing Absolutely. So before we jump into clinical trials and new therapies, what are the existing drug therapies that are being used right now for CLL patients? So when we approach therapy uh, in patients with CLL, we look at a couple of different things. One is what is the age and fitness of the patient if they're under 65 and in good shape or are they older or more frail? And many of our patients are older or more frail. And then we look at the characteristics of the disease. So we look at uh, what are the chromosomes or the cytogenetics show? Does a patient have a 17P deletion or complex chromosomes or a mutation in what we call TP53? We also look at what's called the immunoglobulin heavy chain mutational status. It's a mouthful. But by looking <laughs> at those, those uh, factors, you can really select the right 
therapy for a patient or the right couple of possible therapies that you want to discuss with a patient. So for younger patients under 65 who are mutated, which is favorable, has a good prognosis, and do not have 17P deletion, we typically use old school chemoimmunotherapy, so fludarabine, cytoxin, and rituxin, because the percentage of those patients may actually be cured of their disease. Uh, you know, you've got to follow people for many years to really be able to say that, but there is data both from the U.S. and from Europe that suggests a proportion of those patients are actually cured. So that we would do for those younger patients. For younger patients who are unmutated, so that's unfavorable, have 17P deletion or complex cytogenetics, then there are other options. 17P patients typically go on the novel oral drugs like ibrutinib because they do not respond well to standard chemoimmunotherapy. The disease tends to stay in remission very briefly, so we use those therapies. For people who are sort of in the middle, they're unmutated but do not have 17P, we discuss options including time-limited chemoimmunotherapy, either cuderabine, cytoxin, and rituxin if they're young, bendamustine plus rituxin for a limited number of cycles, or we talk about the novel agents, which are very effective, but people need to be on for long periods of time. These agents can also be associated with side effects like abnormal heart rhythms like atrial fibrillation or bleeding. For our elderly patients, we typically um, look at chlorambucil, which is an old drug, alkylator drug in combination with a new drug, obinutuzumab, which is like rituxin, but a little bit more potent and more active in CLL. And that is a very good option for an elderly patient, or we think about ibrutinib or potentially one of the other novel oral drugs. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. You really need to look at a number of different characteristics of the patient, what their preference is, and the characteristics of his or her disease. And many of these new drugs are also oral medications, right? Yes. Yes. Very exciting. It is very exciting, and usually it's you know a lot more convenient for patients, but we do find, and, and since you do work with adolescent and young adults, that sometimes there is issues with actually taking medication at home. Yes, it's a big issue. It can be, sometimes patients forget, these are very expensive medications. Fortunately, for the majority of our patients, we live in the U.S., and fortunately most people can get these medications at a reasonable cost, or if the cost is high, we can usually find some assistance for many of these patients. So that's one barrier. And taking a medication every day, you know, the data shows that many patients are not taking the medications as prescribed. And the thing we worry about a little bit in that is, you know, if you're not taking your medication, just be honest with your physician because what can sometimes happen is people can become resistant to that treatment. If you're taking it on and off, the tumor cells are not getting a continuous uh, sufficient exposure to the drug and they can, it may be easier for those cells to outsmart that drug. So, you know, we know that it's not easy, so we need to work with patients and, you know, don't I would say to patients, don't be embarrassed or feel like you can't admit that you miss the drug or you just don't like it or whatever it is. We need to work with you and figure out an alternative strategy. And do you find some patients don't take medication because of side effects? Oh, all the time. You know, with ibrutinib, which is a, a very active drug, over time, a significant proportion of patients come off for side effects. We can reduce the dose. We now know that a lower dose, particularly in older patients, may be very effective. So it's not like you have to take the full dose or none at all. You know, we try to work with people and figure out what can you tolerate because 
you know, we're not doing anyone any good if we prescribe it and think you're taking it and you're not because you just feel crummy. Let's figure something else out. We were talking to another doctor and she was saying that, like Lizette said earlier, because of the cost of the drug, the person will say to themselves, I can stretch this drug out. I can take it every other day. Or they might say, oh, I'm actually feeling good today, so I'll just take it when I start to feel, you know, badly. So I think oral adherence is something that... It's, you're happy because it's oral, but then you're thinking, no, but you have to stay on it in order for it to actually do its job. <laughs> right. I mean, I think we were all really excited initially to have all these oral drugs, but over time, you realize there are definitely some advantages to coming into the clinic and getting your infusion and coming back a few weeks later. So it's they're just very different. And I think that's something we talk to patients about, particularly when there is an option for upfront chemoimmunotherapy or starting a new drug that you're going to take indefinitely by mouth every day, some patients know themselves and say, no, I want the short term in and out. And then when when it comes back, then we'll figure out what to do next. When you're speaking to your patient and you're discussing therapies for them and the topic of clinical trials comes up, how does the patient usually receive that or what's the common reaction that you get? It really varies. You know, a lot of our patients with CLL, because they're on active surveillance for a period of time, many of those patients are pretty savvy and have read online, so they know what a clinical trial is. Occasionally, you get patients who'll say, well, I don't want to be in the placebo arm. You know, you really have to take time to explain the ethics of doing trials and what the goals of doing trials are and, you know, what the risks and benefits are. So it's quite varied. Some people come in specifically saying, well, what do you have that's new and exciting that may not include any chemotherapy? Because that's what I want. But on the other hand, you may have people say, well, if it's not approved by the FDA, I'm not going to be a guinea pig. And you, you, it takes time to really explain to people why, you know, what a trial is, what the goals are, and why it may or may not benefit that individual patient, depending on what phase it is. So it takes a lot of education. And I think, you know, having programs like you have, you know, where you educate patients on exactly what trials are, these are very important. I'm glad you're talking about the education because we've gotten a lot of calls here and our information specialists are talking to CLL patients all the time who have called, they're on active surveillance, and they're asking to go directly to a CAR T-cell trial. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we see that, you know, and Or, you know, if this is a disease that you're telling me is not going to be cured with standard treatments, why don't I get an allogeneic transplant now? So you really have to explain that, you know, these are life-threatening therapies that you may not be looking at ever. You may never need them. And, uh, you know, you really have to balance the side effect profile and use them when appropriate if the disease is not responding to better tolerated and standard therapies. We hear the same things, guinea pig, placebo, sugar pill, last resort. We hear all of these things. And in one of our other episodes, we spoke about clinical trials. And we definitely just want to get the message out there that this is something that every single drug that people are now using came from the clinical trial. And clinical trial serves as you know research and preparation. And it serves as something that can potentially help future generations even. So I definitely appreciate the fact that you, like Lizette said, you speak about education of these things. And if you look at the drugs we're using now, 
uh, every day in the clinic, ibrutinib, venetoclax, obinutuzumab. These were drugs that were in clinical trials and are still in clinical trials, but you know, even just a few years ago. And I think things have really changed in terms of the rapidity with which we get drugs to patients. I think the FDA is really, you know, you have to strike a balance because there has to be safety and you can't have a drug that you don't understand how it works or what the side effects are going to be. But things really, I think, are appropriately quicker now to get to patients, which is great. Mm -hmm. And for the patient or caregiver or anybody listening right now, and they're saying to themselves, they're asking themselves, what's new in CLL research and treatment? What would that be? Are there any exciting things out there that our listeners should take note of? Yeah, I mean, I think these combination studies, and there are a number of them. We have one here looking at combining venetoclax, acalabrutinib, which is like abrutinib but maybe less toxicity, uh, with obinutuzumab in previously untreated patients with the goal of getting rid of any residual disease and stopping treatment. So that's the new thing. With combining drugs, you may get deeper remissions and allow patients to come off treatment. So that's one area that's exciting. I think CAR T cells, you know, initially, they're some of the early studies at Penn were in CLL patients. And then you weren't hearing so much about CAR T cells. Uh, it was looking at ALL or aggressive lymphoma, I think because all of these novel drugs were coming into play. But now I think there's renewed interest in CAR T cell because if that ends up being manageable, maybe that's less toxic than a donor stem cell transplant, an allogeneic transplant. So I think those are two big areas. There's some new other immune modulating drugs, I think, that are looking very interesting like CAR T-cells, but without having to genetically engineer a patient's own T-cells. So I think there's a lot. There are many, many trials going on in CLL. It's very exciting. What about vaccine therapy? So vaccine therapy, um, that's something that is being looked at in a number of different cancers. I think we need to figure out, you know, in patients with CLL, their underlying immune system is not normal. So I think we would really need some good preclinical evidence to show that a patient with CLL can mount a good response to a vaccine and what are the, you know, there's a lot of new generation vaccines trying to really try to personalize the targets for patients. So it'll be interesting to see if that plays out. And with all these new combinations and new and exciting treatments in clinical trials, as well as better testing for minimal residual disease, do you think or anticipate that in the future, instead of talking about CLL as being a chronic disease, do you think that there may be a possibility for a cure? Yeah, I mean, I think already we know that a subset of those younger patients who get FCR may be cured. We know that patients who have allogeneic transplants at the other other end of the spectrum may be cured. If you can get someone to a minimal residual disease state, meaning you test in the blood or bone marrow and look to see if you can't find any CLL cells, we need to know now follow those patients longitudinally. Is that because we, we just can't detect those cells and they're going to show up? Or, or with combination therapies, have we really eradicating those cells? So, you know, and even if we can't eradicate them, but patients can have long disease-free intervals where they're off treatment and living their lives and have good quality of life, I think that is a really uh, important goal as well. And we touched upon uh, genetics earlier, but I think that's something where I just wanted to just mention again, because it's something that I'm reading more and more about, and that scientists are learning more about the biology of CLL cells. Yeah, so 
in terms of the mutations within the tumor cells, I think, as opposed to genetics in terms of inheritance is what you're asking. So yes, we routinely get panels to look for you know, TP53 mutations. Those often go along with 17P and can be an indicator of very difficult to treat disease. So we want to know about that. There's NOTCH, there's SF3B1. There are a lot of mutations that are being identified that may be important in terms of prognosis, but also in terms of choosing the uh, optimal therapies. So we do, here we have a panel that we send, and I think many centers have a panel that they send to sort of fully characterize the disease. Already we're using cytogenetics and mutational status of the heavy chain Mm -hmm. genes, but some of these other mutations are extremely important uh, in figuring out how to best manage a patient. It's an exciting time for a CLL patient. It is. It really, it's, you know, even since I've been doing this, it's changed so dramatically in such a good way. Yeah. Thanks to physicians like you and researchers Mm -hmm. that help to bring this all forward and educate, you know, their patients. A cancer diagnosis is never easy. And I think when there's comfort in knowing that there's physicians like you that exist, that helps to say, you know, there's somebody advocating for me. I I mean, yes, self-advocation is very important, but to know that there is a team that is actively learning their field is, is a wonderful feeling as well. And, you know, I think it's a a community and the providers around the country and around the world who focus on lymphoma and CLL, you know, now all know each other and learn from each other and design trials together. So it's really pretty great to be in, in that community and watch these things move forward. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us about CLL, Dr. Legace, and for all that you do for your patients. It's been great chatting with you. And for anyone who's listening who would like more information about CLL, please visit www.lls.org forward slash booklets for our CLL booklet as well as our CLL guide. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Great questions. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.